I didn't have that knowledge of limiting beliefs. And, right. you know, and all I had was the upbringing that I had. And just like everybody else has, you know, you come in with these core set of beliefs. And until they come to awareness and looking at your life and you're saying, whoa, this is a problem. And like, do I want to address this or do I want to like push it back down and wait till it springs up again? Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey there, and welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Linda Case. Linda is a financial therapist and a financial coach with over 30 years combined experience in financial services, professional counseling, and coaching. Coaches her clients to manage their money and mindset so they can get firmly on a path to financial freedom and a comfortable retirement. One of the things that uh, wrote on her website is the following. You can make the best possible financial plan that will set your client up for the rest of their lives, but then life happens, priorities changed, people don't execute. I have found this to be so true, and I am looking forward to this conversation with you today. Linda, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So where do you call home and where are you connecting from today? I call home Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I've been here actually about 10 years, so this feels very much like home now. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Not all that far away. I haven't left Pennsylvania, so it was more the state capital but very different. I wanted to challenge myself talking about making transitions and, you know, moving things around in life. I left a very secure spot and where I had a financial services agency and decided to challenge myself and move to the city and see what city life was like and also go full-time with counseling. So where was it you grew up? Central Pennsylvania. So Harris is the state capital. Yeah. Okay. Harrisburg. Harrisburg. Yes. Harrisburg. Oh, I'm going to, this is terrible. My wife went to college in Pennsylvania and it's either Harris Bucknell. Is that where Bucknell is? Bucknell is like Lewisburg area. Lewisburg. Which, oh, well, yeah, all good. It's one of those bergs. All I knew it was one of those yeah. bergs. Anderson is a very good school. Yes. Yeah. It's a great school. So I'm curious, I start most of these conversations out this way and I kind of want to get to what did you learn about money? and maybe small business, you know, growing up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? Oh, my goodness. Well, I didn't learn much at all, to be honest, <laughs> because my father was a Lutheran minister. When I turned seven, he had left the, uh, being a teacher. He was a mass teacher, and he felt called to the ministry. So he was not financially driven, let's just say. And my mother was also a school teacher, so we lived in a parsonage, so our housing was taken care of. So I didn't really get inundated with like business knowledge, like somebody who may have had a business owner as a parent. I learned about things very differently, but I definitely, what left an impression for me was my mother ran the household and she paid the bills. And... You know, when we talk about money beliefs and when I work with clients, it's like, what did you hear growing up? And I often remember her paying the bills and saying, well, I have to rob Peter to pay Paul. 
And it was funny because my father's name was Paul. <laughs> I never thought of that before. But so, you know, it was just that, you know, we have to live on credit in a way. And definitely, no, we can't go to this store to buy school clothes. We have to go to Sears. And, you know, I kind of dug my heels in on that. And I didn't understand, you know, how they manage money. And even, you know, with my dad's spiritual bent on everything, when I be got into the insurance industry, we had already built our house and had a couple kids. And I was just, you know, had this desire placed in my heart for something bigger, you know, move on, give the kids more, you know, each their own bedroom and things like that. And I remember staying at the mailbox and my father was like, you know, it's kind of like, when are you going to get filled up question, which I understand in a spiritual way, but also, you know, it was like a shameful thing to want more. So, yeah, I've always had that push pull of like, you know, I see you can do better, but should I want that? You know, is that really the right thing to do? So, I mean, I understand why clients struggle, you know, in this area. Depending on, you know, what their, you know, beliefs that were stored into their subconscious mind were, do, we act from. Do you think that the lesson you learned from your father is from that old parable, the rich person, the eye of the needle, heaven? Do you think that's where that comes from? Yeah. You think so? Yeah. And mm -hmm. what, money is the root of all evil, but it's actually the love of money. Love of money. A yeah. Love yeah. Money. Yeah. So it's, I didn't know this about your background, and I know we've talked before, but I didn't catch that. But my grandfather was a Lutheran minister, what? and when he died, I remember distinctly the whole family coming together, and you know, after he died, and talking about, you know, he had invested well, so he didn't have that same kind of belief structure that your dad had. And I remember the thing that I wanted that he left behind was his sermon notes. And I have like a whole box of his old sermon notes, like fifty years of sermon notes, which is. Kind of neat. Very, yeah. very cool. But my dad also grew up very poor. Even though their family owned a jewelry business, they did not do well in uh, New York State. So, yeah. 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 So, can you point to like any specific childhood experiences with money or conversations about money that might become a part of your money story later in life? Oh, definitely. I remember, and it was more as a late teenager uh, going shopping with my mother and my mother loved to shop and she loved clothing and so we were walking through i believe it was john wanamaker and i said oh those shoes are so pretty and she said well why don't you buy them and i said but i, I can't afford them i can't pay for them and she said well just put it on credit and i was like i didn't even understand what she was talking about and i was like what and she goes yeah you just open up a credit card and like you buy it and it, it just you know, I had no perception of what that whole world meant. It was just, uh, but later on, I started to do that and it really did affect me and like the decisions I made because they were based on, well, I guess, you know, mom says it's okay. And I guess that's mm. what you do in life. But I had no real education on how to manage money, you know, that's, and how to little, write a check. Yeah, that's a little scary. I mean, the idea that, because you already said your mom was, the phrase was have to borrow from Peter to pay Paul, right? So your mom's already using credit to buy stuff and she's just sort of indoctrinating you a little bit into the shopping culture and, and hey, you can't afford it. Don't worry about it. Just put it on credit, you know, open up a store credit card. Oh, 
Yeah. That's kind of scary. So how long did it take for that experience to translate into a belief? And then what is the belief that it translated into? Well, it's the belief, I guess, became it's easy to do this, you know, and mm. you can deal with it later. Just buy right. now, pay later. I mean, these like, things like a firm that we have today, all those those situations. And, and I have a client right now, and he's pretty high up in marketing at one of the travel firms. And said, oh, yeah, that's like one of their best sellers, you know, because, you know, they're just encouraging people to go travel and this, you know, and like, oh, it's only so much a month. Yeah, but it ends up taking them years to pay these trips off. How long did it take you to unlearn that lesson? I'm assuming you've unlearned that lesson, <laughs> but how long did that take? I have. Oh, it took <laughs> many years of trial and error. And it was like, unconsciously too, I knew like, this is not a way to live. And yet somehow it was like just our culture in a way that just, mm -hmm. you just kept hearing it. And it was, you know, all the advertising and then you walk into the store and you see these, you know, encouragement to do this. So I had to really get very aware of what I was doing. And it was like, I can't li keep living like this. So, and I didn't have the tools back then that I do now that I use energy psychology to change beliefs yeah. rapidly. But it is, and I watch my clients do it too. It's like you go into debt, you get out of debt, you go back into debt, you get out of debt. <laughs> it's like, okay, when is this going to stop? Because it's like the subconscious mind is 95% of what we're operating from, the limbic system. And yep. it shows in the brain scans when people are making a decision where it's coming from. It's pain and pleasure is what we're either going towards something or we're like avoiding the pain of it. So the pleasure would be, I want to enjoy this now. Oh, I can buy a new sofa. I don't have to pay for this for at least 90 days. You know, but the problem is, you know, a lot of those cards is they're what banking on you not being able to pay it off in that stated amount of time. And so they're going to collect, you know, whatever double digit interest rate they can get. Um, was it a, did you develop sort of a natural understanding? Hey, this isn't going to work. Or was it a traumatic event that kind of unlocked that knowledge? Well, it was pretty much a natural, you know, I just noticed like we couldn't get ahead no matter what. Mm. And I was like, what are we doing here? So uh, yeah, I definitely, and I did seek out before I got into this field more. I did seek out coaches and they couldn't seem to really address that. It's like they were more interested in like, did you have a large amount of money to invest? Because they mm. didn't want to deal with like, I would actually go and it's like, would you please work with me on my spending plan or something like that? And they're like, I went to financial planners. And this is before I got in the field. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing here? So I always had this interest in it. And yet I couldn't like fully grasp what was going on because I didn't have that knowledge of limiting beliefs and, right. you know, and all I had was the upbringing that I had and just like everybody else has, you know, you come in with these core set of beliefs and until they come to awareness and looking at your life and you're saying, whoa, this is a problem. And like, do I want to address this or do I want to like push it back down and wait till it springs up again? Or no, I, maybe I just take a, a quick dive into it and it's like, oh, better now. <laughs> and then you're like, it's like the alcoholic who says after a year or so of being sober, it's like, oh, 
you think I can have a drink, you know, and next time whoosh, they're off to the races. Yep. And yep. I have seen that with my clients. Yeah. Yep. Very, very scary. So, so I know this is also a part of your money story. I think you write about it in other places, but could you tell the audience about your life before the great recession, 2008, 2009, and then what happened through the great recession for you? Okay. Well, oh my gosh, there's too much story for before, but I, I owned a, an insurance agency and I'd say early 2000 or so I, I went through a divorce and decided, wow, I would, you know, what am I doing here with my life? And I, I decided to go back to grad school for clinical psychology. So I got my master's and pretty much finished the PhD. And then I actually juggled both for a while because I owned my own agency and I had a, a really good agreement with my office manager. She, for the most part, ran it and I would do counseling part-time and then I would also run the operation. But then when 2008, nine hit, I wasn't fully aware of what my company was doing. And interesting, since our conversation before, it came to light. I went online and did some research. They did actually switch all the agents over to, they, they totally closed the old contract and they made them, there's no more independent agents. They were forced to buy their businesses back if they wanted to stay which was crazy. And uh, so they had, were targeting at the recession, they needed money. So they were targeting certain agents. And unfortunately I was in a very vulnerable position at that time. I had gotten engaged and then things went very wrong and he died suddenly of a heart attack. So I was not in a good, strong position for anything. And within a few months they came in, they put the pressure on me and I said, kind of like I give up, you know, so I lost the agency. And uh, so it became a real financial struggle for a while. And I just wasn't prepared for that. So did, you know. uh, did any of your beliefs about, I mean, it, it sounds like there was not, it was less because of your own actions relative to the great recession than it was your company's actions relative yeah. to the great recession. But did that change any of your beliefs about money or, well, you know, even small business? Absolutely. Yeah. That would be like a financial trauma for sure. And yeah. when you're in that kind of trauma, you cannot use your conscious reasoning mind too well. And right. so everything became survival based and yep. I made one bad decision after another. And looking back, I was like, wow. You know, even though occasionally I went to advisors, like attorneys and things, accountants for help. I don't even know that I got great advice then. So I did not get myself set up very well during that time. So it became more the thought of this could be very risky where when I entered that business, when I actually got into that agency, I was in the business since 89, but I went with Nationwide Insurance in 96. So I was there about 13 years. But I remember when I jumped into that, I had no fear. I was just like, I could do this. And like, I had no clue. I did. They didn't even tell me how much income I would have to run this agency. They were like, go rent the space. This is where about where it has to be. You have to have this many employees. You know, I had to buy furniture. I did all of that with no financials there. Wow. It, yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> I know. Would I do that today? <laughs> Lessons learned. 
You know, and it was so funny. I uncovered an old contract, the one I initially signed with them. And apparently none of us had really read it because it actually said they were going to pay my employees expenses and salaries and certain other expenses too. And I didn't even find it till maybe 10 years ago. And I was like, oh my goodness, look at this. This is just, that whole thing was just a whirlwind of activity you know, designed to get me up and running. But somehow it worked out, you know, it was a belief, a strong belief, like I can make this happen. Because of going through a trauma, it's like, uh-oh, this is very scary now. And you never returned to the insurance business, right? Now it's coaching and therapy and one-on-one. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So just before we look at the work you're doing at F3 Cubed, so how did you develop this work? And how long did it take you to develop this coming out of the loss of the agency? Okay. Well, the idea, the seed of it all started to percolate back in the early 2000s, somewhere around 2003, four, when I was working in my PhD at that time. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be interesting to put these two fields together? And I searched around online and I, I couldn't find anything. You know, yep. and so, you know, I kind of waited out. I kept looking, you know, and finally a little coaching program popped up and then I actually went to it out in Denver. And then the Financial Therapy Association came into existence, which I was one of the original members of. And that's really taken off and developed. But yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it was many years in the making of like, how could I make this work? And it wasn't till I really delve deeper into like the spiritual aspects of money and getting my training on energy psychology that really, I think, developed onto this program that I created. Because I noticed, you know, again, like we all have our patterns. And if you don't change those patterns, you're going to, your mind goes right back because it's that groove, that, that neuro, you know, plasticity that takes you right back into this is the pathway that we operate from. And if you deviate from it too far, it wants to pull you back into balance. So when I found like Psyche and emotional freedom technique and hypnosis, which I'm all trained on, it's like, oh, this doesn't have to be painful. Like we can change quickly. The important part is knowing what you want. So it's like bringing it first to awareness and then saying, you know, looking at your life, well, what don't I like about my life right now? Well, I'm in debt or I haven't saved or like I'm never going to be able to, you know, whatever those thoughts are you're having. And if you just shut down, like you're going to keep going on the same route that you've been on. But if you like open up and think, well, there's a possibility that I could change. And if I just identify some of these beliefs that I have, and sometimes you don't even have to know what some of these subconscious beliefs are and we can tap into that with the tools that I use so yeah it's just been in the making for many years I'm taking little deviations here and there so I'm curious about and I really should know the answer to this question but do you remember when the first Nobel Prize was awarded for behavioral psychology in Nobel Prize in economics was rewarded to Daniel Kahneman and Tversky had already passed, but that was right about this time. So you're, wow. you are combining these things at roughly the same time. 
that the prospect theory is being written about by Daniel Kahneman and Eamon Tversky, which they win the Nobel Prize for a little bit later. And I didn't put that together in our previous conversation, but you are combining the psychology of money and financial planning at roughly the same time and looking for places where that's being talked about, right? Right. And then since there's been like two or three Nobel Prizes that are behavioral psychology related. Wow. Is that shocking to you? But, you know, I have read that what happens in the quantum field, you know, that we are all accessed in the great web of, right? That, Mm. you know, different scientists or whoever they are can be working on a project at the same time and they all can pull it in, you know? And it's like, okay, what's the answer to this? And that's like, it becomes the race of who's going to put it out there first. Apparently, it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they were studying it and you were more practicing it. And that's a little bit, a little different, you know, paper publishing. Yeah. So people ask see myself as a researcher as much. Yeah. So people ask me all the time about my transition from sort of religious studies to being a financial advisor. And you did this transition from being a financial advisor to being a psychologist. So what was the stimulant at the time to say, hey, I'm going to get my PhD in psychology. I'm an advisor. I'm an insurance person. You know, I have my own agency. Why go get a PhD in psychology? What was that thinking? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, in say 99, 2000, I was going through a divorce and yeah. it was life changing. Of course, I had three children, you know, on the agency. And uh, so I, you know, went and to get some support and through this discussion with a psychologist discovered, well, many years ago, I started college at 16. So my dad had taken a church in a small town north of Harrisburg, and they didn't have an honors program. So I was stuck. It was like, okay, what do they do with her? Well, ship her off to college a year early. And I was not prepared. And I was mm-hmm. not really given serious guidance of like what to major in or anything. So my second semester, I switched to psychology and my parents threw a fit. They said, you're never going to make a living in psychology which I thought, well, this is really, you know, at the time, if I look back, like, this is really interesting. There's my dad, a Lutheran minister who went and got his master's in counseling. And now they're telling me, you stay in chemistry and that's where you're going to make it. So I got very confused and, you know, I took a whole different path in life (laughs) until boom, I hit that turning point. And it was like, you know what? I really love psychology. And I was like loving these discussions because, you know, I would love deep conversation and, uh, you know, it was more than just helping me through the divorce. It was like talking psychology. This is very cool. And he would like recommend books for me. I'd go like devour those. And so I quickly like jumped into a program. I had to get 12 undergrad credits in the summer. By the end of August, I'm enrolled now in my master's. I wrapped it up in 13 months. I went, you know, right through it. And uh, I took maybe just a few months off before I started the PhD. But I mean, that was like my passion and I can't imagine doing anything different now. I mean, insurance served a purpose. I don't regret having done all of that. It taught me a lot of people skills. I mean, it was so funny today. Somebody asked me when you did insurance, did that have anything to do with like counseling? And I said, well, actually, yeah, I worked for Lutheran Brotherhood, of course. <laughs> and I was doing full-time financial services and more the life insurance and securities and stuff. 
So they sent us to Minneapolis and my second career school was called the Counselor Selling System. And I was in heaven. I was like, wow, that's so cool. You know, I'm learning about personality styles and I'm like practicing with people. And I was like, so I literally learned the basics of how to conduct a session. You know, the empathy, the active listening, all of that was taught to us in the insurance business. So mm -hmm. that when I applied for my master's, I wrote about it. I said, you know, as part of my, you know, this is why I want to do this. I said, I've been doing this for years. I work one-on-one -on -one with people, you know, and. Um, does that, I'm just curious, and this is a bit of an aside, but does it bother you at all that the insurance company is teaching psychological selling techniques? I mean, that used to really perturb me when I went okay. to sales training. I didn't like being, I felt it was a little bit manipulative. Like, how do I get under your skin right. and identify it's not just identify a need and fulfill need, which is also another selling technique, but it's how do I identify the thing that makes you afraid so that I can sell to that fear? And that I really didn't like. Oh, okay. I looked at it a little bit differently. So I remember the system we used, drivers, amiables, analytical, and expressives or the personality mm -hmm. types. And so that was designed to help you understand how somebody else operates so that you can connect with them, which to me would today would be empathy, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I just had fun with it in a weird way. I mean, I didn't see it as manipulating people, but it's like, how can I get on their level to be able to talk to them? It may not have been, you may not have learned how to manipulate people. I was being taught how to manipulate people, oh, different processes, right? How do and, I, yeah. and as an introvert, I was like, oh, yay, a tool. Because <laughs> like, I'm not like the talker talk. You know, it's just like, you can't just put me in a room and expect me to network. That's not going to happen. But uh, so I remember just like a few times and I was like, wow, this is like really true. So I had this attorney. I went to his office and he was like, boom, you know, right to business. And I'm like, there's your driver. Oh, my gosh. And one time. I went out and I, I delivered a death claim to this man and it was his wife who had died of cancer. And then, I don't know, it was, I was my amiable self, you know, there. And I didn't know who he really was. And he didn't say a whole lot. But finally, he said to me, well, when are you going to sell me this? And I think he was talking about a disability policy at the time. And I was like, taken aback. I'm like, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah, here's the driver. <laughs> okay. And the analyticals, oh my goodness, the funny stories. Like I had one guy, we would sit at the kitchen table, him and his wife, and he wouldn't say a word. And, you know, and I put out all the numbers and yeah, da, 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 da. oh, they have to think about it. So he was so almost like an avoidant personality that he slid the paperwork under my office door. He couldn't just talk to me. Wow. So some analyticals right. are very, yeah, they're just very standard engineers they're yeah, engineers I right i know <laughs> i know that today you work with female women business owners right can you paint the picture of i know the statistics are kind of staggering about successful businesses and you actually talk a lot about micro businesses people being unable to escape the label micro like it's always small it never quite grows to build wealth for the family can you talk just a minute about the statistics around successful female entrepreneurship yeah i mean it's a small percent that breaks out of that micro business mold and you know and i just have to attribute that to a lot of belief 
that we have been brought up with that we don't speak up for ourselves and uh, don't go after and like always busy taking care of other people, whether it's family or, and I even got caught in that trap. I remember saying to myself when I owned my insurance business, I have to take care of Jill. Jill was my office manager. And that just, it was like ingrained in me. It's like you take care of the people who work for you. I felt responsible for her life, like in a weird way. And so I think as women and in business, we still are under that cloud of like, this is what we do. You know, we take care of people. It isn't all about us. We aren't as competitive. We're more likely to back down on you know, negotiations and things like that. So, and I don't even know, I mean, it's difficult for people to, women to talk about that, those things. Uh, it's a real struggle is like, well, who does that make me then? Is that more mm -hmm. ego-driven thing? Or, you know, I don't want to be seen as, you know, whatever negative connotations they might have of what that looks like to be in business, whether it's greedy or, you know, not caring about of other people. Yeah. my And I always bristle a little bit. I know that you're saying true things. I came from, so my dad was a business person, not a greatly successful business person. But he also backed on the negotiations. He also was sort of taken advantage of by employees. He also wasn't, he had a micro business that never built any real wealth or even income for our family for probably 13 years of my growing up, right? It's, so it's, I know that there are examples, you know, the Venn diagram, the circles are overlapping. There are men who are a little bit more softer in their touch when business and then there are women who are a little bit harder in their touch yep, in, in that is business, true. Right? I mean, I, yeah, that's a good point you bring up. And when I'm thinking of, well, as we talk about feminine versus masculine energy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. That would play a big role in that. Yeah, how are we wired to show up? Right. And it's not always gender. It's there's energies, right? And do you right. know if any of that, as I was preparing for this, I was going, I was asking you questions about men versus women in business. And I was like, do any of the statistics actually take into account non-binary? Do you know? I don't think that wow. they do. Wow, that's fascinating. No, I don't know that. And that I might think be that a they do, to tap into, to research that. I imagine that's coming. Like, I think the statistics are men start business, women start business, men are the successful percentage of men, percentage of women. I don't think there's any research or statistics on non-binary businesses or pick your category retirement. You know, I don't think there's much research on that at this point. Yeah, interesting. You know, it popped That's in my weird. mind as we were talking here too. At one point in Lutheran Brotherhood, I had become very successful, like the top of their salespeople. And so they sent me out to Minneapolis for a two-day interview to talk about going into the associate general agent, you know, role. And then I guess the next thing would be general agent. And the feedback came back and everybody thought I had the job. I mean, the VPs like me, everything. But then the final say was the industrial psychologist. And he came back and he said, you care too much about people. Yep. Yeah, see, when they trained you how to sell, they meant what I learned. But you taught, you took it a different way. Like, oh, I can connect with people because that's, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So it's fascinating. Can you talk about male, female. But, you know, I love that you brought that up because I'm going to like, Definitely look into that. It's worth a peek for sure. Can you speak a little bit to 
the conditioning of limited beliefs. You just touched on it a second ago, and I want to make sure that we bring it to the fore. I know you work with a lot of women and those conditioned limited beliefs. Just talk about how women are conditioned and what are some of those beliefs? Sure. Well, we all are conditioned male, female, and it starts at a very early age, like under age five or really seven. Seven is when we start to develop the conscious reasoning part, the logical part of our brain more, the neocortex. But before that, we're pretty much walking around in almost a hypnotic state. So it's like the alpha theta brainwave state that when I take somebody into hypnosis or even do it to myself, you can get there quickly. And so kids are walking around and they're like little sponges and like, They hear something on television. They hear mom and dad talking. They hear, you know, maybe they're school teachers. They hear people at the church talking. So it's all going in there and they have no way of filtering it. And so that's how those beliefs start to develop. So they'll just take it in and then we start to operate from that. So even though you might not be making financial decisions at that time, although as children, I guess, you know, still you could be. Have mom or somebody gives you money for your birthday or the tooth fairy or whoever. <laughs> what are you being taught? How do you, I mean, it's all of that is that programming. And so um, it often shows up years later and you have no idea why you are driven to do these things. You know, why do I want the big house or the fancy car? You know, and now we have social media to thank for so much more of our programming because yep. You know, as I was growing up, that wasn't a thing at all. I mean, granted, we were still absorbing so much in there. Uh, you know, definitely sitting in the living room listening to my mother pay the bills. It's like, oh, okay, I don't know what catalogs. Is. I mean, there were catalogs of stuff that we wanted when we were kids. That was the through the catalog, circle what you like. Oh yeah, I remember yep. the whole thing. <laughs> so like, oh my gosh, this is so funny that we're having this conversation. You know, now I still do love catalogs. Oh, God, I hate them. I hate them. I hate catalogs. Oh, my God. It's like it, but they become, you know, whatever (laughs) happens. If like you associate something good, you know, with whatever you did as a child, why would that go away? You know, like if you remember the smell of freshly baked cookies, that's going to like light up your brain. Dopamine is going to like kick in. So this is what's happening. It's like the dopamine receptor is like, whoop, you know, it's like this makes us happy. We don't have any real control over it because it's the subconscious mind where the conscious, you know, is, is the will. And that just goes so far. And we can make changes doing it that way. But it's, it's a lot harder. And you often revert back to the old way because that's so powerful. Can you talk about some of the, I know that everyone's conditioned, but some of the ways that women specifically are conditioned, you know, vis-a-vis their success in business. Oh, okay. Uh, So women, you know, are taught to play like the lesser role, you know, and don't for too much stuff. I mean, I remember specifically, you know, if I started to rise up in the insurance business, you know, I was, now I became like, they were not two pleasant words used about me. And then I became a target. So then you're like, you want people to like you oftentimes as women. And so then, oh, I'm going to make myself smaller or, you know, whatever to, to be part of the group. So it's that wanting to belong, those kind of things mm-hmm. that women are more drawn to generally than maybe men. 
So, uh, you know, it's not a feminine thing to be, you know, you're seen as aggressive. You can't tell other people what to do. I ran into that one at Three Mile Island. So I was in chemistry. I did, I don't know if we discussed this, but I did eight years as a nuclear chemistry. So you're a genius, is what you're saying. That you- Three Mile Island, I was part of the cleanup operation for the uh, reactor. Wow. wow. So uh, yeah, dad got his way. I, I did go to chemistry for a while. <laughs> And that's when I believed I could do just about anything, you know, and then the trauma hits, you know, and then that all went away. It was like, wait a minute, this world is not as safe as what I thought it was. Yeah. And it's like, you got to protect yourself. How does some of those, when you're working with a client on their own ability to, you know, build wealth for their family and their money beliefs, how do those limited beliefs show up? Okay. Well, the way they show up is they may commit to saving. They may commit to, I have a guy right now, I've been working for him with him. Oh my gosh. At least six months or more. And okay. He came in and it was, he had spent, well, lost over a hundred thousand dollars by using betting apps. Wow. So uh, to this day, I have encouraged and gave him all the tools. Like, you really need to work on creating a spending plan. Just had him in this week again. And I, okay, you're coming up on a year's anniversary of having tackled this problem, but are you guys ready? You know, and he'll give me a million excuses. And my concern is until you get back or get to like a good habit of how you handle your money. That possibility still looms there because when you are vulnerable, you know, just as I experienced in my own life many times, it's like it all goes out the window. If you don't have that right. strong foundation of great habits, whether it's saving, tracking your expenses, you know, and to me, it doesn't have to be down to the penny. I mean, I'm not that rigid, but you need to have awareness and that's very key, awareness. And if you don't have that, it all goes out the window. It's everything becomes unconscious. Like I had a client, a woman who was a professor and she finally brought in all of her unopened mail because whether they were bills or checks, she even had a fear of cashing a check and depositing it because she thought maybe they'd ask for the money back. And this this was a very (laughs) firm belief she had. And then this is a PhD educated woman who's out there teaching, you know, communications more or less. It's just, I know it is astounding when you sit with people one-on-one and you find out what's really going on in their heads and you can't, it's not that you're going to shame them or tell them they're wrong or anything. It's like, okay, this is where we're starting from. And it's in your awareness now. And you want some support on this? I'm here for you. Right. I know this is a a bit of an aside, but, and I want to loop back to the energy work that helps people speed through this, but just before we go there, I had a client once tell me everything's fine. They're great friends of mine. We're social together. They're lovely people. I love them. And then like a couple of years goes by and they don't tell me, they don't tell me, they don't tell me that they're building this credit card debt. You know, they're living on their credit cards and I see their finances and I see, oh yeah, everything's great. Everything's great. But I don't see all their spending. I don't see the spending. If I can't see it, I can't help with it. And so there's an amount of shame Same. around yeah. money. Absolutely. They're close friends. I've worked with them for 20 years and they hid 
their use of credit cards for two years. And then they finally said, you know what? They couldn't deal with it anymore. They said, Jonathan, help us. This is our thing. This is what we're going through. You know, help us deal with it. So how often do you see shame as sort of an overriding problem? Huge, yes. I mean, even if the, I have clients coming in and it's not specifically money related, we end up having those discussions. And I think I have helped them feel safe having that conversation with me. Thank goodness. But Unfortunately, so many people out there don't have a safe place to go and where they're not going to be judged. And yeah, it's like, how could you do that? Like, even one of my own daughters got herself back into trouble again with credit cards. And I said, why didn't you come to me? You know, and she knows what I do. But again, it's that shame of like, I thought I had taken care of this and now I'm in trouble again. So, and it's interesting because I think that we have this illusion that everyone and social media obviously helps this illusion, you know, stay alive that everyone else has it figured out. Like I have liquidated my 401k to survive. Like I did that. That was many years ago, but I had to do it. You've gone through something in 2008 and you've gone through, you know, we're experts at this stuff and yet it happens to us. And we're just, we need more people admitting that. I think no reason to judge. It's just. As the bumper sticker says, shit happens. Like that's, you know, that's how it works. That's interesting. Yeah. Many years ago, I I was at the beginning stages of wanting to do this work. And I talked to this much older woman and she said, oh, you can't tell people you've had a problem. I was like, wow. You know, and that stuck with me for a night and that put the shame back on me again. And I was like, you know, but it feels so freeing. For people, you know, and how can you get beyond it and make good decisions until you have freed yourself of that shame? So it's like, can you forgive yourself? So forgiveness is a big part of the work. And whether you use, I like to use this Hawaiian forgiveness prayer, Ho'oponopono. It's like, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Thank you. So you can forgive yourself. You can forgive others. I could forgive the company who kind of did me wrong. <laughs> so uh, it's just because everything is energy. And so when we feel that shame, all these negative emotions, it's keeping us stuck and it doesn't allow us to really shine our light out into the world and become all that we can be and help others too. So it isn't just about creating your own financial wealth or freedom plan. It's like, how can I be a role model to others and say, it's okay to do these things, but you can get back on track or you can find your way if you've never been there before. Yeah. Yeah. I think you kind of, by being honest and saying, Hey, I screwed up here by being a professional in the industry and being honest about it and admitting your mistakes and admitting where you've sought help yourself. I think you can then sort of be the light that enables other people to say, oh yeah, I did that too. Or, oh, I don't have to feel bad about that because obviously that's, this happens to lots of different people, right? So we can, we give each other permission to make mistakes and learn and get better and, you know, re- recover from them. So I, I remember um, years ago, one of our general agents saying to me, a lot of the agents get themselves into trouble because they don't set money aside for taxes. That can come up to some pretty huge tax bills. Yes. I've run in a few of those, not just with agents, every small business owner I know who like doesn't set it aside. They're like, oh my God, I forgot about this whole, you know, FICA tax, right? They forget oh, that. Yeah. Yes. To, to both sides, right? Both sides. Right. Hey, 
we're running short of time and I want to make sure that we leave time to talk about the energy process. Oh, okay. Sure. You know how I'm a little bit skeptical of anything of energy, but I will admit that hypnosis actually did change my life when I was a kid. Absolutely improved my life. So I do believe in hypnosis. It actually had a huge effect on my life. So I'm hugely positive and it doesn't sound like there's that much difference in what you're talking about. So please explain the energy tools you use and you're opening something up in the brain that allows it to shift. Right. So I'll give you my own hypnosis story. And I entered the insurance business in 89. I was like, well, this is great. I'm an introvert and I don't think I want to do cold calling. I can't see myself through cold calling. So how am I going to make it? So I was like, I could do workshops, but I'm really afraid of public speaking. I'm like, okay. But my dad had just been to a hypnotist to stop smoking. And so I got in my little head and said, oh, I should just go to one and like get over my fear of public speaking. So I did. I marched myself off to this woman. And so we worked on it and she gave me a little card. I'm a great speaker. I was to go home and like I literally laid on my bed, watched the ceiling fan go around and I do all my little things with my fingers, you know. <laughs> And repeat my little affirmation over and over, you know, get myself in the hypnotic state. And then one day she says to me, and we only had maybe three sessions together. And she said to me, I'm going to give you a gift. And so she handed me a card and she said, I make $100,000 a year. So this is 1989. And I'm like, Yeah, not buying it. <laughs> I just laughed. I was like, Okay. <laughs> but you know, way to make this energy psychology, all of this hypnosis work for you is to have an open mind, right? And so at that point, I had an open mind and I'm like, why not? Okay. So I went home and I did my little thing, you know, and I plugged in that new thought, this belief of I make $100,000 a year. So within two years, I was making $100,000 a year. And something had to get switched in that brain of mine to allow that to happen. So whatever these beliefs, you know, that I work with people on, I could never do that or money, you know, burns a hole in my pocket or I can't save or I'm never going to be able to retire. You know, whatever those thoughts are coming in, you know, whether I use hypnosis, which is definitely more in-depth work, or I can use Psyche, which is balancing the right and left hemisphere of the brain. We put people into a balance. I literally contact their subconscious mind. I can either do through muscle testing or another method I use. And then first we have them say the statement out loud. So I'm asking, does their subconscious mind actually believe this or not? And oftentimes it's no. And then I ask, you know, I can't go into great detail about what the balances are, but it's been developed over time. It's been well tested and researched and they do work. So we put the through the balance, have them for certain ones, they repeat it in their mind over and over again. And then I test, is it complete? Bring them back out. They state it, you know, with meaning, we say with meaning and conviction now. Do you believe this? Does your subconscious mind believe this now? And then oftentimes we will get a yes. Sometimes you have to put an action step into it. So with financial work, that would make sense. Now, whether, you know, I'm it's easy for me to create a spending plan. You know, whatever it is they need to address in their life, it can be done with energy work. And emotional freedom technique, there is a lot of, and I just went to the energy psychology conference at the end of May. 
more and more research coming out. The APA doesn't really, you know, they're very protective of what they do. And they've often looked at energy psychology as, you know, sort of woo-woo, which is probably what you've been referring to. But there is enough evidence that the Veterans Administration has approved it for use with PTSD for that. Very effective, uh, very effective for pain relief. There's just so many uses for it. And, you know, when you just look at the body as an energy system, doesn't it make sense that things can get stuck in there? And, uh, you know, so we have to, you know, you're really looking at what's going on in your life, you know, look outward. And if that's not pleasing to you, okay, what would you like instead? So that's the beginning of it all. And then crafting a statement that works. So it's so interesting to hear you talk about the state, reading the thing off the card, because when I went through hypnosis, it probably was only three sessions and it was, I did it with my aunt. I had a problem as a child. I was probably nine years old and my aunt sat with me three times. I was, she's my crazy aunt. So maybe some of my judgment about energy work comes from my family calling the aunt that helped me out with hypnosis, my crazy aunt, which who I love, like she's right. But I love her, but I had this problem and she had a couple sessions with me and then she gave me a tape. And I lay down in my bed and I put the tape on, you know, the headphones yep, yep. And, I put the, and I just played the tape and I went to bed with the tape playing and I woke uh-huh. up with the tape playing and I went to bed again the next night, tape playing for weeks and weeks. And the problem went away. It just was gone. Yeah. So that messaging to your brain works. No That's- question about it. Right. Awesome. Yeah. And I woke up Very- one day to it all and I said, you know what? I never got beyond a hundred thousand dollars. Plug that in. Yeah. So you got to say 250. You need another card that says 250. That's what you got to have. I work with that. Yeah, you did. It's so funny. Uh, After years, I'm like, oh my goodness, that really works well. (laughs) So I have a really close friend of mine who tells me a story about his first psychedelic experience. And this is what he said. And I want to see if you know any researcher or anything about this. He said that when he was coming down, like he had the... It wasn't a fun psychedelic experience. Like people took mushrooms and they go, you know, oh, this is great and bright colors. And it was like a therapeutic psychedelic experience. And he said, as he was coming down, it was as if, and you spoke about the grooves in the brain. It was as if the needles in the grooves were lifted and he could see each needle in each groove and he could select which needles he wanted to put back and which needles he wanted to not have anymore. That was his experiential sense of coming down off of a psycho, a therapeutic, you know, guided psychedelic trip. And I was like, because I know a little bit about psychology, a little about the grooves in the brain, a little bit about behavioral psych. And I was like, wow, that is such a cool description. Have you heard anything like that? And is there any sort of research that you've read that sort of backs up the use of psychedelics in this kind of a thing? Well, Okay. I mean, I appreciate what your person went through. That was very fascinating. I recently went to a meditation. Now, it was a very large gathering of Indian, mostly Indian people. And so it was a, a guru who is like, yeah, this is embarrassing, but I don't remember his name. Yeah, it's one of those names that just didn't stick. But he came to Philadelphia and I was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. I will go to it. And he spoke to that. And he said, you know, I understand this has become, you know, using the drugs and, and people seeking higher consciousness is what they're doing. 
But what happens, and I have read this too in books, it literally does damage to your brain. So you can't have one without the chemical interference. Whereas if you do it through meditation or like Hmm. some of the things I'm doing, it's not harmful. So that would be my caution. There are other methods of getting the exact same results without taking that risk of doing long-term damage to your brain. So that it may have functioned the way he said, but in going after that experience, he might have done long-term damage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I personally wouldn't, I would never touch that. No. Yeah. Well, I, I think, yeah, I don't want to push one way or the other. I'm curious about it and I hear a lot more about it. I think it's one of those things that we're going to see a lot of research on, you know, coming I think, up. Well, I do. Yeah. Right, right. Research pending. Resting of the guru at right now. Yeah, I'm a meditator myself. So, I, you know, okay. I go that path first. I'm not afraid of a little risk, but I don't want to do long-term damage to, to my gray matter either. That sounds kind of scary. I just hear of uh, somebody who said their son, it was, oh, I know what it was. I listened to a lot of podcasts on your uh, death experiences and, and such and mediums. And this woman lost her son. He went to college and just did one time a synthetic drug and he died. Woofta. So, you know, can you ever say what's in there and how it's going to affect yeah. you? So I, yeah, that's my caution. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the caution. There's a ton of noise out there. I ask every single guest to make it to really simplify for us. So if you met, you know, a woman business owner and she asked you, what is one thing that she should focus on that would unquestionably lead to better personal financial success? And then what is one thing that maybe she had been focused on that she should stop worrying about? Okay. Well, I'd like to start at the beginning then and just to bring total awareness and clarity to what she's doing with her finances and to work on relieving any stress related around there because under stress, we don't make good decisions whatsoever. And I had a friend who was a very successful businessman and this is where this is coming from. I was always impressed by what he said. He started his business out of his garage and it was a video tech company. And, you know, he's probably worth at least say $40 million today after he sold it and best wisely. So he said, I never, ever borrowed money. And I make that how I operate my business. I don't want to go down that path. And if you can avoid it whatsoever, uh, find a way to, there are ways. And that's what, what I talk about in my program is your imagination. Like when you want to create something, it's all there. It's all there. And you, know, you don't know how it's going to show up, but you're like open to synchronicities, open to meeting people that want to help. You know, it may show up in ways you just have no clue as how you right. get there. But yeah, just to be very conscious. If you do have to go into debt, very conscious of like the plan and don't keep adding and adding. Like your friend who like the credit card debt is it yeah. just... Once you get in the pattern, that's it. It's a pattern. Yep. And then the shame comes out. You can't get out. Yep. Yeah. It's a huge, huge problem. Huge, yeah. So just before we wrap up, I like to go back to the personal side of things. I want to ask you, uh, is there anything that people don't know about you, or maybe you've said it and they don't remember about you, that you really want them to know? Wow. Uh, I have been through a lot of transitions in my own life. I know what it's like to be up and 
be very down. Uh, to battle myself out of depression and, you know, definitely interpersonal uh, problems between divorce and then and even death. So uh, there's always hope. You can always bounce back. And that being resilient is, is how I see living life. Yeah. So second question, if you could get the truth about any single question about your life or future, what would you ask? Oh my gosh, that's very personal. I love it. Um, with my life partner. Do you have my answer? I can't answer it. I, you know, now the world knows the question, there. which maybe the life partner will show up. That is the question. I put it out there. Because I have a wonderful life and I just want to share it with someone. Fair enough. It's out there now. Now it's public. You can't retract it. So tell us how people can connect with you and find you. Um, connect with me. Um, you know, feel free to text 267-377-7349. I tend to lose emails. They get lost in a big pile. So I respond to text messaging and um, I'm happy to have a consultation with anyone. What's your website? 3-cube.com. Okay, great. It'll all be in the show notes so that people can reach out and find you. Linda, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. It's been eye-opening for me, and I look forward to just staying in touch. Okay, me too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.